Good morning. Happy New Year to you all. <clears throat> um, we had, um, I was sick, I got tested for COVID and for the flu and for strep and all that came negative. And uh, the doctor thought I had a sinus infection, so that kind of knocked me out for um, uh, funeral. Chris filled in for, and then uh, Christmas Eve service, uh, all happened on the same weekend, uh, which Jimmy filled in for, and then uh, Sunday morning service, which Chris filled in for again. Uh, so praise the Lord for all the, all the help uh, that was uh, there to, um, to do that. <clears throat> I'm, uh, I was coughing uh, a lot. Uh, and so I thought it wouldn't it'd be more distracting than uh, encouraging, you know, like, oh, my word, is he going to die up there? Uh, so uh, um, uh, thanks for the, the help. <clears throat> We're in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And we'll be looking at verses 1 and 2. Your bulletin is wrong because your bulletin got printed uh, back on the 11th of December, we did like three bulletins at once because Joy was going to be gone. And so uh, it has what should have been preached today, but it's got pushed back. So uh, we're looking at uh, imitators of God. Uh, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Ephesians chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, in offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray now that your spirit would illumine our minds and strengthen our hearts. Father, we want something radical for this year, which is to be transformed, to be more like Christ. And there's no type of sermon that I can deliver or anybody else. It's through your spirit using your word and strengthening us. And I pray that that will happen. Father, I pray that each week we will become more and more like Christ and less and less like ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> there are certain things in life that um, require a, a bare minimum for them to be unique, to, for them to be what, what they are, you know. Uh, you take, for example, an airplane. An airplane has to have um, kind of the, the center part there, and it has to have the wings, and it has to have the engine. Uh, if you uh, take something away from that, for example, you take one of the wings away, well, then you just have a really expensive paperweight, right? It's not going to function. It needs a bare minimum of essentials for it to be what it is. A cake. A cake has to have flour, eggs, and milk. It can have other stuff in it. Uh, you can make uh, frosting, and you can make decorations, and et cetera, et cetera. But there's a bare uh, essential element. And, and I know someone's going to come up to me and like, I've made a flourless torque before. Well, a torque is not a cake, so don't come up with that. You have to have a bare essential of, of things to make it to be what it is. 
in Latin, where it's the phrase sine qua non, uh, without these certain things, it, it's not what it is. You know, it, it can't be. It, it needs some essential elements. Now, sometimes we confuse the sine qua non, the essential elements. We will sometimes take uh, very important elements and make them essential. But there are some things that are essential to life, and then there are other things that are just important. Uh, for example, Jesus establishes this in Luke chapter uh, 14. Luke chapter 14, he's talking to the crowds, and uh, he, he tells them something kind of radical to them. Luke chapter 14, uh, verse 25, he says, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So <clears throat> he establishes a, a certain thing of uh, importance. Family is important. But then there is the essential, which is Christ. You, you can live uh, with a spouse or without a spouse. You can live with children or without children. You can live in proximity to parents or without. But what you cannot do is live without Christ. That, that's an essential. Uh, other things are important. God ordained. But essential is Christ. Now, thinking about this, thinking about what is essential, if you were to disciple a new believer what would you say would be essential to the Christian life? What would you say is the sine qua non of the Christian life? What, what would you say that these elements you must have, these other things are important, they're very important, but you must have these things in your Christian walk. Would you spend the majority on the time of the time with this new Christian on discovering the being, being a Christian? or on doing, uh, wh which would it be? Uh, that they must be what they must be, or what they must do? Now, as we look in this text, Paul has been giving some strong exhortations to the believers. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. So he, he, he gives them this imperative of walking, this command to walk. And as you read through the verses that come after that uh, importantly to walk, it is a, a call for unity. A call for unity. A unity with the Lord and a unity with one another. He calls them to this. And then over in Ephesians chapter 4, 17, he says, So this I say and I affirm together with you, uh, with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. He ends up calling them to walk in holiness, to walk in holiness. So first he tells them to walk in unity, then he tells them to walk in holiness. Uh, Paul is using this, uh, these statements with this force of an, of an imperative, of a command. This is how you are to conduct your life. This is what you're supposed to be doing. What we're going to look at verses 
what and two of today is that we must be and live according to God's standard for our life. We must be and live according to God's standard for our life. And we see that by uh, how we must love God by imitating Him. Love God by imitating Him. We see that in verse 1. Uh, Paul's writing to these uh, believers, and in the first three uh, a bunch of doctrinal information. Uh, the first three chapters are just loaded with, with information. And you can kind of uh, cipher through some of the uh, doctrine of God as you look at it. Uh, he has a plan. And for saving, for adopting and, and redeeming and sealing believers. So you can come up with this idea that uh, God must be a thinking God who can plan. But not only is he a God that can think and, and, and plan, but he must have a certain amount of resources to be able to execute those plans. I have lots of plans that never get executed because either lack of time or lack of resources uh, it just never comes to fruition. But God has not only the capacity to think and to plan things, but he also has the power and resources to execute those plans to see them to come about. As he has uh, uh, prepared the earth and at the time Christ came to die for sinners, to redeem them and, and rescue them. We see that in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now, as we look at this, we see certain qualities of the Son. The Son is equal with the Father, yet He fulfills the will of the Father in redeeming a people. The Spirit is equal with the Father, but He fulfills the will of the Father in sealing those people until the day of salvation. Now, through these actions, we, we come to certain conclusions, but you, you must be careful with deductions. Uh, our minds are fallen. And our fallen mind sometimes comes to uh, not-so-true conclusions based on on verses that we try to deduce from. Uh, as we think about this, Paul is now addressing them. He, God has this plan, and he's executing this plan. And now, what are they supposed to do based on this plan? It says, therefore, be imitators of God. Now, it's a focus on, on being. It's a small little word. It would uh, start with being, being. It's a, uh, it's a word that has this idea to uh, experience a change in nature and uh, a new condition to become something. It's a, it's a present uh, middle imperative. Now the present has this aspect of being or, or becoming and, and like a continuous thing that you're supposed to be doing to, to be something to become. Uh, it's who you are in your nature. Uh, who are you as a person? Uh, you open up a, a Twitter account and it wants you to give some information. Who are you as a person? That What you put right there, your being, who you are. It, it's a middle which involves the person themselves. You yourself be. And it's an imperative which has this command. It, it, it has this continuous aspect of being, becoming, where the person, the subject, them, are to be doing this. Now, this word in the New Testament occurs a ton of times. It occurs 669 times, and we're going to look at each one of those this morning. No, I'm just kidding. In, in this tense, 
in this tense that we find it, it occurs much, much less. It occurs 24 times. And of those 24 times, four times occur in this letter to Ephesians. Uh, for example, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, it says, Be kind to one another. It has the essence of the person's being, who they are as a person. They are to be kind one to another, tenderhearted. It, it's who they are. It, 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 who are you? I am a kind person to one another, tenderhearted. It's the essence of the person. Ephesians chapter 5 and, and verse 7 also uses the same exact tense, the, the same exact word in the same tense. Uh, Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Uh, the, uh, don't, this should not be your essence. This should not be what you do. Uh, Ephesians 5.17 also uses the word. So then do not be foolish. Do not be a person. Don't, your essence, who you are as a person, it should not be a foolish person. But understand what is the will of God. Uh, <clears throat> so as we think about this, it, it, uh, the way Paul constructs this verbal with a noun or adjective, be kind, don't be a partaker, don't be foolish. The believer has this choice which they're actively involved in. They're not just a flat character that somebody is moving in in the narrative, but rather they are around characters supposed to be acting something out, and they're to be imitators of God. Now, this word imitator has this uh, idea of emulating somebody or someone. Uh, another word you could use is to be a follower, which I think the uh, King James prefers follower. But it has this idea of, of imitating, so that as the person acts, so does uh, the person imitating. This word is, is used rather rarely in the New Testament, only six times. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, where he uh, does a comparison he says he has become a fool for Christ's sake. And in contrast, the believers there have tried to become prudent according to the world's standards. And he invites them to imitate him in how he acts in 1 Corinthians 4, 17. Don't be a fool for Christ's sake. Don't be prudent in the world's standards. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul urges them to be imitators of him even as he is an imitator of Christ. He, as he follows Christ, they are to follow him as he's following Christ. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.6 and 2.14, we see the word up here again, where it says to be imitators through the received word. As they read the word of God, they're supposed to be acting out what they're learning. They're putting it into practice. As they read what is said here, as they get to know God's character, they're supposed to act that out. And then Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging the readers to press towards a deeper relationship with God through obedience. It, he says, go away from the elementary teaching of Christ. He says that in verse 1. Rather than being lazy, be an imitator of those who have gone before us. Now the verbal form of this word so we're looking at a nominal form, but a verbal form we find in 3 John. And in 3 John, it's, it's interesting how this uh, works. If we look at it contextually, the, the word appears in verse 11. 
it, uh, it, it's, you start kind of seeing this thing in verse 9 where a contrast is being set up between Diotrephes in verse 9 and verse 12 of Demetrius. So it says uh, in verse 9, 3 John verse 9, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren, neither uh, either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Wow, this guy is a piece of work. Uh, John, beloved disciple, writes to the church, and he does not accept their writing. And then people who come uh, on behalf of John, this guy, he desires to be first. He doesn't accept them in. And so some of the members say, well, well, I'll take them into my home. Ah, well, he casts them out. He throws them out. Uh, on the other side, uh, verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God, and the one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, and we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. A contrast between two. So looking at this idea of imitating, you end up seeing that there's a choice. One to imitate what is evil, and one to imitate what is good. Uh, two choices you have. Imitate what is good, imitate what is... So Paul is writing to be, the being, that, that it's a small little word, but it's, it's the key word of that verse. Be, who you are in an essence, is to imitate and they're to imitate God. Having the option of being in your nature or to imitate God or to do evil, he says, be imitators of God. Now, this concept is, is a, a unique concept because if you were to look in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, uh, of the Old Testament, you would not find this verb anywhere in the Old Testament. This idea of imitating, especially imitating God, you do not see in the Old Testament. This is a, a, a new concept that Paul is bringing out. The idea of imitating, you can kind of draw from the fact that, for example, God establishes the garden and he makes the garden and then he puts Adam in the garden to tend to the garden. So as he has made the garden, as he has moved into a chaotic situation and given order, he puts Adam in there, and Adam has the same responsibility of establishing order in the garden. So you can have an idea of imitation, but this here is a unique Pauline thing that we don't see in the, in the Old Testament where it says it in, the, in these words. He says, imitators of God. So we need something to compare it to. We need something to anchor uh, this this doctrinal thought too so he gives us he says as beloved children beloved children that word beloved has uh, it, it pertains to somebody who has a very special relationship kind of has the idea of only or only beloved or dearly beloved uh, prized or value 
It's used in many times of where there is a only child and you have both parents uh, loving well that one kid, you know, we, we call it spoiled, but uh, you know, you have both parents just all over that kid, anything they need. It's like 25 years old. Do you want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? You know, uh, it, it just keeps on and on. It just doesn't stop. That's the idea. Now, now thinking about this, do you imitate God because he has loved you well? This focuses on an uh, obligation of the imperative. Or do you imitate God because it's the response of being well-loved, which is a natural response. You are well-loved, and so as you are well-loved, you want to emulate that who loves you. You want to follow that person who loves you. And that's the idea, is as you have been loved, you are to imitate the one who has loved you. Now, what are we to imitate of God? That's kind of a big thing. You think about God, and you're like, okay, uh, what aspect am I supposed to imitate? And I think it, it deserves some careful attention because it, we could get into some dangerous uh, situation here. For example, God exists within himself. He, he's not dependent on anybody else. He doesn't need anybody else. He, he existed in eternity past, and he will continue to exist, and he does not need anything. But we're not like that. We are created in his image. And the moment we try to establish ourselves as independent, we have committed idolatry because we have elevated ourselves. So in that aspect, we're not supposed to imitate God. Well, what else could be dangerous? Well, God has sovereignty and in his providence, he controls all things. <laughs> we, we don't have sovereignty. And whenever you have somebody that tries to establish sovereignty, um, of course, they always do it with the best intentions, right? You know, uh, we're going to establish this dictatorship to be able to help the nation move forward. Uh, it doesn't work. Uh, sovereignty and providence. When we try to do that, uh, things get very messed up. You know, um, parents say, I'm going to help my, my son's marriage, getting involved with it. No, sovereignty and providence doesn't help in that way. You, you have to stay away. Thinking about God and his attributes, theologians consider two, two aspects to divide his attributes. One that is called communicable and the other is incommunicable. Uh, communicable attributes are things that we could probably relate to in, in some sense. For example, God is, is love. and We can love people and we have been loved and so we can kind of have an idea. The problem is, is that uh, we experience love from a fallen state. So even though we say, well, we can understand love, we don't really understand God's perfect love, his holy love towards us. Uh, there's aspects of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And of course, all this becomes very difficult because how do you distinguish between uh, his essential character and what he does? Can you uh, really divide who God is as a person and what he does? What he does comes from who he is. So then there's the incommunicable attributes. And these are things that we have no idea. We, we don't relate to them in any way. 
God is omniscient. Well, we don't. Well, we, we, we're not omniscient. We don't know all things. Uh, God is omnipotent. He has all power. He, he's omnipresent. Um, here, I'm here today. Last week, I was laying on a bed. I can't be everywhere. You're one place or the other. That, that's all you can do. We have no idea about this. So they call it incommunicable. But really, we don't understand God's attributes because we're fallen. He's not. So again, we ask the question, what are we to imitate? How are we to imitate God? In what aspect? It seems such a broad thing that we give up before we even start. Well, contextually, I think we're given some hints. Chapter 4, verse 1, we've already read the verse, but we're implored to walk uh, in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. There's unity, unity with the Father, unity with one another. We imitate God as God is unified. We imitate Him that way. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, uh, he says, For this I say and affirm with you, and the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of the mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from life of God, being of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Uh, we're to walk in holiness. Uh, in, in verse uh, 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ Jesus also has forgiven you. We imitate these things. Now, uh, how do we imitate God? How do we follow him? We have now a, a context for what we're supposed to imitate. Unity uh, and holiness and love. How do we do that? Well, how do people follow role models? There was a guy I knew and uh, he really liked the soccer player, Messi. Uh, <clears throat> Messi has, I guess, a, a beard. And he, this guy tells me, like, what do you think of my beard? He says, don't, don't I look like Messi? Uh, <laughs> I don't know what Messi's beard looks like, so I don't know if you look like Messi. And the, the funny thing is that it wasn't like a young kid. It was a, a guy my age. A guy my age. He has exalted Messi to the point that he felt that his beard was something worth emulating. He, he must have Messi's beard. He has exalted Messi to the point where he says, I value him so much that I want my facial hair to be like his. That, that's what we do with God. We, we are such in awe of him. We are... In, so in awe of who he is that we say, I want to imitate him. I, I, want, I want to act like him. I want to love the things that God loves. I want to hate those things which God hates. 
I am in awe of God, and so I want to imitate God. To imitate God, just like to imitate Messi's beard, you have to know what it looks like, right? I have no idea what it looks like to have Messi's beard. And many believers, unfortunately, have no idea about who God is. Oh, they, they learned about God on some flannel graph somewhere in some Sunday school class years ago, and that's to the extent of their knowledge of God. They've heard that he doesn't like sin. What sin? Well, you know the bad things. What bad things? Well, you know those things we shouldn't do. And we're supposed to love the good things. And what's the good things? You know, well, the things that God loves. And what are those things? Well, you know, good things, holy things. <laughs> and we have believers that have no clue of how to live because they don't know God. Therefore, their passion looks just like the world's passion. And the things that they dislike looks like what the world dislikes. But they're not an imitator of God. It requires you to be in awe of God to imitate him. To, to see him, to value him as more precious than anything and say, I would rather put my life aside and imitate him rather than live one more day like myself because I am in awe of him. Now, being in awe of God requires one to know his word. It requires to see what he does, how he acts, how he doesn't act. For example, I've used the illustration of creation. God moves into chaos and establishes order. He does that. You go into a situation and you act more godlike, and you say, you don't understand, my, my relationship at home is, is a mess. Well, we're called to bring order into that. Things at work are a disaster. Well, we're called to move into that and establish. Now, sometimes you can't. For as much as you want to give order to a chaotic situation, Jesus said this. He, he told the disciples to go out. And whatever houses would accept you, well, then you, you go and you preach there. And those who don't accept you, what are they supposed to do? Shake the dust off their shoes, their sandals, and keep on going. We see that in the life of Paul and Barnabas. They ended up in a town, and they weren't wanted in the town. They moved on. We have to know the Lord to be able to act like him. And you can't be learning something on a Hallmark card be applying this. You have to go into God's word. Now, to love God, not only are we to love God by imitating him, but love God by sacrificially giving yourself to God and to others. And we see that in verse 2. Verse 2, it says, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us uh, an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now, I'll say right at the beginning that culture makes it sometimes difficult to interpret, especially when you have words that are used a lot in that culture. Uh, the word love gets tossed around a lot. And something, uh, the letter to Ephesians has two themes, love and unity. 
But we say love, and the tendency is to interpret love as through our own cultural lens right now. But that would be a mistake because we're not to interpret love from our perspective. We're supposed to interpret love from the author. What is he meaning to communicate when he put the word to walk in love? So uh, just, just so that we know before we get into this that we need to kind of distance ourselves a little bit from what we understand as love. Now, as we look at this, there is a relationship between verse 1 and verse 2. And this, this relationship is caused by a conjunction, the therefore. The therefore marks it different from verse 32. It, it marks a break. Uh, but then the, it has the imperative of being, and then it has another imperative, which is walk. Now, what is the relationship between verse 1 and verse 2? Uh, some have tried to interpret it, uh, if you want the technical word, apexegetical. It, it explains more. Verse 2 explains verse 1. So that being, being is dependent on doing. You walk in love, and as you walk in love, you become an imitator of God. And that sounds all nice and fancy, except that it makes the being part dependent upon the doing part. And Paul has already established that the being, the being the new creature, the new creation, is not based upon doing, as he says in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, 8, 9, 10. It's not through doing, it's through faith. The being comes from faith. So it, it can't be an explanation that as you do, you become. So how, what relationship does it have? Well, it's sequential. You are, and because you are, you walk, you do. It's a sequential. Try to uh, be, uh, do something when they're not what they are. They try to act as a Christian when they've never trusted Christ as their Savior. They try to be moral when they don't have the basis for being moral. Now, as we look at this, the imperative is to walk, which has this idea of how you conduct your life, how do you behave, your, your habit of conduct, uh, conduct. And it's a presence. It has this continual idea of walking. You continue to walk. And it's an active subject. The, the subject is doing the action, and it's an imperative. It's a command. Now, how are they to walk? How are they to conduct themselves? It's in love. In is a, a, a data of a sphere which has this idea that it, just like we are inside of a building, what is surrounding us, uh, above us, or to the sides, below us, is this building. How the believer is to walk is surrounded by love. So that what is above them, what is beside them, what is below them, is love. It's how they conduct themselves. It's, it's what is them. You know, they, they are love. Now, to what standard? Well, because we might start saying, well, I'm a very loving person. Okay, uh, let's see what Paul says. Just as Christ also loved. Okay, so now Christ is going to be the standard of this love. Now, what aspect of Christ should we consider his love? 
what acts did, did God, did Christ do that we could say were loving acts? Well, uh, the incarnation was a pretty loving act, don't you think? I mean, uh, think about the, the God who created everything, sustains everything, becomes flesh, and then is born, just like everybody else is born. Can you imagine God being born? That blows my mind. And then being held and having to be nursed and then having to be uh, taught the ABCs and, and then having to go with Joseph and do carpentry work. It's like, you know, I could do this a lot quicker if you just stand back, you know. Uh, just think of that, being incarnate. But, but no, he, he humbled himself. That's a very loving act. But the incarnation is not the standard. Well, Jesus' teaching that's a very loving act to be teaching, showing the deep things of the Lord. And, but teaching is not given here either. Well, Jesus showed a lot of love when he fed the multitudes. They were out there and they were hungry. And he gives them food, but him feeding the hungry is not the standard. The standard, even though all those things are fantastic, the standard is Christ also loved you and gave himself for us. Two things there. This is the first part, first place in Ephesians that we see that Christ loved us. We have seen that God loves us, but now we're seeing that Christ loved us. And his love motivated him, pushed him towards giving himself up for us. Okay? How? As an offering and a sacrifice to God. Now we have the standard by which we love. As Christ gave himself to die on a cross, he says, I give my life, no one takes my life, I give my life and I take it back. As he gave himself totally to be offered up as an offering and sacrifice to God becomes our standard of how we are to love. That's a pretty hard standard. Thinking about that, many times we come across people in, who are unsaved and they make statements about Christianity and they're true statements. They say, Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. Okay? And they're true. It's a true statement. Uh, they say, um, you know, Christians, they, they'll, they'll backstab the wounded. You know, the poor person is there crawling and the Christian will come up behind them and stab them a couple more times and, and laugh at them and then say, God bless you. Yeah, it's true. It happens. It happens a lot. I wish it didn't. But Christians are not the standard that we're supposed to be looking at. Christ is the standard. He's the one that we're supposed to imitate. God, we're supposed to imitate God by walking in love. As we are imitators, Christ becomes the standard of love. It's not believers. Believers are going to fail. They're going to fail and fail and fail. But Christ is the standard. And what we point to is not just a little bit of love. It's love as Christ loved and he gave himself. There's a, um, we, we don't have Sunday evening service. And we haven't had a Wednesday service, so you, you, you'll be here for a little while. So just, you know, I see I got five, I got four minutes, but hey, don't worry. E Ephesians chapter 12. 
Ephesians chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. The, the writer is, gives this whole thing about faith in, in, in chapter 11 and talks about all these people of faith who are examples to us. And then in, in chapter 12, he says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race which is set before us. Fixing our eyes on the fellow believer. Is that what your translation says? Fixing your eyes on the incarnation of Christ. No. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Who are you supposed to be looking at? At Christ. He's our example. Don't, don't fall into the temptation of replacing some other aspect. Well, Jesus fed multitudes and I, I feed people, so I love like Christ loved. No, that's not what we're supposed to, that's not the standard. He, he gave grace to sinners and I'm very gracious to sinners. That's not the standard. The standard is as he gave himself as an offering in sacrifice to God. Now, walking in love comes from being a follower, being who you are, being a follower, being an imitator of God. Walking in love comes from being a follower or imitator of God. Let's move this into the arena of missions very quickly. When you think about what should motivate us to think about missions and missionary endeavors, what is the motivating factor? You might say, well, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, he gave the great commission, make disciples of all nations. And that would be a, a pretty good motivating factor. I mean, it's Christ Jesus that gave this. I mean, that's a pretty good motivating factor for going. Others might say, well, it's the lost. There are millions and millions of people that will never hear the gospel. They'll, they'll hear Reagan's speech about tearing down the wall before they ever hear about Jesus Christ. That's a pretty good motivating factor. But that's not the motivating factor. The motivating factor is that there are places that don't worship God. See, one day missions will end, but worship will not. And the reason for missions is because there are places that do not worship the Lord. Psalm 67 verse 4 says, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. The nations will one day be glad through the preaching of the word. One day missions will end, but worship will not end. For all eternity will worship the Lord. See, there's places around the world that are not being an imitator and therefore they're not walking in love. And it requires somebody to go and preach. Because how will they believe unless somebody goes and preaches to them? There's places around the world that they cannot be an imitator because they don't know the truth. They cannot stand in awe because no one has told them. 
Now, I won't talk about the millions because I talked a couple Wednesdays ago about the billions of people, and it, it's too hard to, uh, to grasp. Well, I'll just use a smaller number. The city of Echevarri, outside of Bilbao, 15,000 people and not a single evangelical word. Not a single. I'm not talking about a good Baptist I'm talking about not a single evangelical word. Therefore, they're not going to be imitators of God and they're not going to be walking in love. They're not going to be in awe of him to follow him and to imitate him unless somebody goes. Now, what are we going to do this year? We're at the beginning of the year. We're just going to stay here looking at each other, taking care of each other, patting each other on the back and saying how good of Christians we are. Or are we going to do something? Because there's millions and millions of people who are not going to be imitators of God. And they're not going to walk because they haven't heard. And they'll go through a whole eternity in hell, separated from God, unless we go and tell them. What are we going to do this year? Is, is really our mindset going to be so small that it's like, if we could just fill these chairs, we'll be satisfied. That's pathetic. There's a world that needs to be an imitator. They need to stand in awe of God and to walk in love. Let's get a vision and a passion for what God has to reach the nations with the gospel so that they can be imitators and walk in love in Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, there are some things that are just essential to life and essential to the believer. And that is to be and to walk. You can't really be a believer if you just try to live walking in love. And you're not really a believer if you're just trying to be. Father, both are important. Father, we want to see Houston, America, and the nations being imitators and, and walking in love. Father, give us a, a vision. Give us the courage to reach out. Father, if there's someone here that isn't saved, I pray that today can be the day of salvation. Father, I pray for other of us here that maybe we've been raptured with other things. We've been enthralled in, in awe of other things other than you, Father. And therefore, we haven't been loving what you love, and hating what you hate. I pray that we can seek forgiveness and start living for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you please stand with me and we'll sing this song of invitation.
It's like the second time I heard it. I'm sorry. Uh, that was kind of rough there how I did that. Um, was that where it kind of stopped? Yeah, okay, good. Uh, <laughs> one time, uh, um, Charles, he did this song I didn't know, and I went up halfway like through the stanza. I thought it was the end because it, it did like a pause, and then, I was, and then it kept on singing like a whole other like, chorus thing, and I was like, so I'm sorry about that. Um, no service tonight. Uh, Wednesday, services start again. Uh, please lead us in the last song. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Joined as with Jesus as we travel this song for a part of the family. The family of God. 